Chapter Eighteen, Part Two of Popular History of Ireland, Book Eleven by Thomas Darcy McGee, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Administration of Lord Cornwallis before the Union. Mr. Ponsonby's amendment, affirming by the House of Commons, was in these words: that the House would be ready to enter into any measure short of surrendering their free, resident, and independent legislature as established in 1782. 1799, to the defence of the established constitution of their country. The arguments with which they sustained their provision were few, bold, and intelligible to every capacity. There was the argument from Ireland's geographical situation, and the policy incident to it, the historical argument, the argument for a resident gentry occupied and retained in the country by their public duties, the commercial argument, the revenue argument, but above all, the argument of the incompetency of Parliament to put an end to its own existence. Yourselves, exclaimed the eloquent Plunkett, you may extinguish, but Parliament you cannot extinguish. It is enthroned in the hearts of the people. It is enshrined in the sanctuary of its constitution. It is as immortal as the island that protects it. As well might the frantic suicide imagine that the act which destroys his miserable body should also extinguish his eternal soul. Again, therefore, I warn you, do not dare to lay your hands on the Constitution. It is above your powers. These arguments were combated on the grounds that the islands were already united under one crown, that the species of union was uncertain and precarious, that the Irish Parliament was never in reality a national legislature, that it existed only as an instrument of class legislation, that the union would benefit Ireland materially as it had benefited Scotland, that she would come in for a full share of imperial honours, expenditure, and trade, that such a union would discourage all future hostile attempts by France, or any other foreign power, against the connection, and other similar arguments. But the division which followed the first introduction of the subject showed clearly to the Unionists that they could not hope to succeed with the House of Commons as then constituted, that more time and more preparation were necessary. Accordingly, Lord Castlereagh was authorized in March, to state formally in his place, that it was not the intention of the government to bring up the question again during that session, an announcement which was hailed with a new outburst of rejoicing in the city. But those who imagined the measure was abandoned were sadly deceived. Steps were immediately taken by the castle to deplete the house of its majority, and to supply their places before another session with forty or fifty new members, who would be entirely at the beck of the chief secretary. With this view, thirty-two new county judgeships were created. A great number of additional inspectorships and commissioners were also placed at the minister's disposal. Thirteen members had peerages for themselves or for their wives, with remainder to their children, and nineteen others were presented to various lucrative offices. The Escheatership of Munster, a sort of Chiltern Hundreds office, was accepted by those who agreed to withdraw from opposition, for such considerations, but who could not be got to reverse their votes. By these means, and a lavish expenditure of secret service money, it was hoped that Mr. Pitt's stipulated majority of not less than fifty could be secured during the year. The other events of the session of ninety-nine, though interesting in themselves, are of little importance compared to the Union debates. In the English Parliament, which met on the same day as the Irish, a paragraph identical with that employed by Lord Cornwallis introducing the subject of the Union was inserted in the King's speech. To this paragraph, repeated in the address, an amendment was moved by the celebrated Richard Brinsley Sheridan, 
and resisted with an eloquence scarcely inferior to his own, by his former protégé and countryman, George Canning. Canning, like Sheridan, had sprung from a line of Irish literatures and actors. He had much of the wit and genius of his illustrious friend, with more worldly wisdom, and a higher sentiment of personal pride. In very early life, distinguished by great oratorical talents, he had deliberately attached himself to Mr. Pitt, while Sheraton remained steadfast to the last in the ranks of the Whig or Liberal Party. For the land of their ancestors both had, at bottom, very warm good wishes, but Canning looked down upon her politics from the heights of empire, while Sheridan felt for her honour and her interests with the affection of an expatriated son. We can well credit his statement to Grattan, years afterwards, when referring to his persistent opposition to the Union, he said he would have waded in blood to his knees to preserve the Constitution of Ireland. In taking this course he had with him a few eminent friends, General Fitzpatrick, the former Irish secretary, Mr. Turney, Mr. Hobhouse, Dr. Lawrence, the executor of Edmund Burke, and Mr. afterwards Earl Grey. Throughout the entire discussion these just-minded Englishmen stood boldly forward for the rights of Ireland, and this highly honourable conduct was long remembered as one of Ireland's real obligations to the Whig party. The resolutions intended to serve as the basis of union were introduced by Mr. Pitt on the 21st of January, and after another powerful speech in opposition, from Mr. Gray, who was ably sustained by Mr. Sheridan, Dr. Lawrence, and some twenty others, were put and carried. The following are the resolutions. First, in order to promote and secure the essential interests of Great Britain and Ireland, and to consolidate the strength, power, and resources of the British Empire, it will be advisable to concur in such measures as may tend to unite the two kingdoms of Great Britain and Ireland into one kingdom, in such manner, and in such terms and conditions, as may be established by acts of the respective parliaments of His Majesty's said kingdoms. Second, it would be fit to propose as the first article, to serve as a basis of the said union, that the said kingdoms of Great Britain and Ireland shall, on a day to be agreed upon, be united into one kingdom, by the name of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Third, for the same purpose it would be fit to propose, that the secession to the monarchy and the imperial crown of the said United Kingdom shall continue limited and settled, in the same manner as the imperial crown of the said Great Britain and Ireland now stands limited and settled, according to the existing law, and to the terms of the union between England and Scotland. Fourth, for the same purpose, it would be fit to propose that the said United Kingdom be represented in one and the same Parliament, to be styled the Parliament of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, and that such a number of lords, spiritual and temporal, and such a number of members of the House of Commons, as shall be hereafter agreed upon by the acts of the respective Parliaments as aforesaid, shall sit and vote in the said Parliament on the part of Ireland, and shall be summoned, chosen, and returned in such a manner as shall be fixed by an act of the Parliament of Ireland previous to the said Union, and that every member hereafter to sit and vote in the said Parliament of the United Kingdom shall, until the said Parliament shall otherwise provide, take and subscribe the said oaths, and make the same declarations, as are required by law to be taken, subscribed, and made by the members of the Parliaments of Great Britain and Ireland. Fifth, for the same purpose it would be fit to propose, that the churches of England and Ireland, and the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government thereof, shall be preserved as now by law established. Sixth, 
For the same purpose it would be fit to propose that His Majesty's subjects in Ireland shall at all times be entitled to the same privileges, and be on the same footing in respect of trade and navigation in all ports and places belonging to Great Britain, and in all cases with respect to which treaties shall be made by His Majesty, his heirs or successors, with any foreign power, as His Majesty's subjects in Great Britain, that no duty shall be imposed on the import or export between Great Britain and Ireland, of any article now duty-free, and that on the other articles there shall be established, for a time to be limited, such a moderate rate of equal duties as shall, previous to the Union, be agreed upon and approved by the respective Parliaments, subject, after the expiration of such a limited time, to be diminished equally with respect to both kingdoms, but in no case to be increased, that all articles which may at any time hereafter be imported into Great Britain from foreign parts shall be importable through either kingdom into the other, subject to the like duties and regulations, as if the same were imported directly from foreign parts, that where any articles, the growth, produce, or manufacture of either kingdom, are subject to an internal duty in one kingdom, such countervailing duties, over and above any duties on import to be fixed as aforesaid, shall be imposed as shall be necessary to prevent any inequality in that respect, and that all matters of trade and commerce, other than the foregoing, and that in such others as may be before the Union be specially agreed upon for the due encouragement of the agriculture and manufactures of the respective kingdoms, shall remain to be regulated from time to time by the United Parliament. Seventh. For the like purpose it would be fit to propose that the charge arising from the payment of the interests or sinking fund for the reduction of the principal of the debt incurred in either kingdom before the Union shall continue to be separately defrayed by Great Britain and Ireland respectively, that for a number of years to be limited, the future ordinary expenses of the United Kingdom, in peace or war, shall be defrayed by Great Britain and Ireland jointly, according to such proportions as shall be established by the respective Parliaments previous to the Union, and that after the expiration of the time to be so limited, the proportion shall not be liable to be varied, except according to such rates and principles as shall be in like manner agreed upon previous to the Union. Eighth, for the purpose that all laws in force at the time of the Union, and all the courts of civil or ecclesiastical jurisdiction within the respective kingdoms, shall remain as now by law established within the same, subject only to such alterations or regulations as may, from time to time, as circumstances may appear to the Parliament of the United Kingdom to require. Mr. Pitt, on the passage of these resolutions, proposed an address stating that the Commons had proceeded with the utmost attention to the consideration of the important objects recommended in the royal message, that they entertained a firm persuasion of the probable benefits of a complete and entire union between Great Britain and Ireland, founded on equal and liberal principles, that they were therefore induced to lay before His Majesty such propositions as appeared to them to be best calculated to form the basis of such a settlement, leaving it to His wisdom in due time, and in proper manner, to communicate them to the Lords and Commons of Ireland, with whom they would be at all times ready to concur in all such measures as might be found most conducive to the accomplishment of that great and salutary work. On the 19th of March, Lord Granville announced the same resolutions in the Lords, where they were passed after a spirited opposition speech from Lord Holland, and the basis, so far as the King, Lords, and Commons of England were concerned, was laid. In proroguing the Irish houses on the 1st of June, Lord Cornwallis alluded to these resolutions, and the anxiety of the King, as the common father of his people, to see both kingdoms united in the enjoyment of the blessings of a free constitution. 
This prorogation was originally till August, but in August it was extended till January 1800. In this long interval of eight months, the two great parties, the Unionists and the Anti-Unionists, were incessantly employed, through the press, in social intercourse, in the grand jury room, in county and city meetings, by correspondence, petitions, addresses, each pushing forward its own views, with all the zeal and warmth of men who felt that on one side they were laboring for the country, on the other for the empire. Two incidents of this interval were deeply felt in the patriot ranks, the death at an advanced age of the venerable Charlemont, the best member of his order Ireland had ever known, and the return to the kingdom and to public life of Lord Charlemont's early friend and protégé, Henry Grattan. He had spent above a year in England, chiefly in Wales and the Isle of Wight. His health all this time had been wretched, his spirits low and despondent, and serious fears were at some moments entertained for his life. He had been forbidden to read or write, or to hear the exciting news of the day. Soothed and cheered by that admirable woman whom Providence had given him, he passed the crisis, but he returned to breathe his native air, greatly enfeebled in body, and sorely afflicted in mind. The charge of theatrical affectation of illness has been brought against Grattan by the Unionists, against Grattan, who, as to his personal habits, was simplicity itself. It is a charge undeserving of serious contradiction. End of chapter 18, part 2. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.